Hi, this is Karen Bedoni, and this is My Life Wildlife. I work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service at Kayakuk, Nuitna, and Inoko National Wildlife Refuges, and I work as a biologist and environmental outreach coordinator and educator at the refuge complex. And in some ways, more of an ecologist, I guess, because I do like to see the bigger picture of all how all the pieces fit together, both the biotic and abiotic, and then changes over time. And that's that's definitely one of the advantages of being, you know, someone in this role who stays in the same place for a long time. You see a lot of the changes over time. You get to know people in the communities who've been here their whole lives, you know, the, the local elders who've seen... 60, 80 years of change. They remember things that their grandparents said. You know, I think when you're situated in one place for a long time, you really kind of get connected and get to know a place in a, in a different way than you do when you're just visiting or spending a few years here and there. So we are, we're in the bush. We're flying only, although you can get here by dog team. We're on the Yukon River about 350 miles west of Fairbanks. We're about halfway between Fairbanks and Nome on the same latitude, located right on the north bank of the Yukon River. There's about 550, 600 residents. We have a boarding school for high school students that draws maybe 150 students plus staff, which kind of bumps up our total population during the school year. I grew up in Colorado in the, in the mountains and spent most of my childhood outdoors whenever I could be. And I just kind of always thought that's how everybody grew up. I, I tried really hard to get my dog growing up to want to be a sled dog. <laughs> he was a mutt and he, um, he did pull a sled. He, he didn't really pull me, but he, I did make him pull a sled and like, when I'd spend the night at a friend's house, I'd load up all my gear and pack it in the sled and make him pull it. <laughs> so when I grew up in Colorado in the 80s, there was a lot of snow. We did a lot of snow sports and um, a lot, a ton of cross-country skiing. And, and I think if he had more inclination to actually pull and be a sled dog, like if his vision had been mine, uh, then I definitely would have started ski touring at a very young age. I started skiing when I could walk, basically. So it was kind of a no-brainer when I moved to Alaska to get some sled dogs and, and do a lot of ski touring and dog sledding. And that's probably one of my main passions in life. It kind of combines my love of the outdoors and animals and just physical activity, you know, which is also, I think, what drew, drew me to becoming a, a biologist is that uh, I don't care to sit in front of a computer much more than I absolutely have to. <laughs> so. I moved to Alaska in 1994. I went to graduate school in Fairbanks and worked on my master's degree here at the refuges and then took a permanent job as I was completing my master's program. I started out studying yellow-cheeked voles in post-fire early serial stages, so early years after burns looking at changes in population, population dynamics in those burned areas. So that kind of got me started in studying small mammals and fire ecology and plant ecology. 
that kind of led me toward doing more of the work at our refuge related to plant ecology, successional changes, climate change, weather conditions, some of the abiotic conditions, snowfall and permafrost and things like that. My mom is a botanist and so, and she always claims that she studied plants because they sit still and you don't have to go find them. So they're like a captive audience. I just had that interest in small mammals. I felt like it was something that was pretty accessible and hands-on, literally, like live trapping and, and that kind of interaction. And you can ask some really interesting questions without a ton of effort because, you know, these creatures have, they're fairly numerous. They have small home ranges and, and you can really ask some interesting questions about habitat associations and population dynamics and things like that. My master's work, I was live trapping yellow cheek bulls and they were so great. They're just such cool little critters. And we were like spending entire summers interacting with them. And that was pretty amazing. You know, we're, we're more used to probably redback voles that are kind of mouse sized and yellow cheek voles, they're twice the size of a mouse. <laughs> They're really cute. <laughs> they're super cute. And they're social. They live in colonies and they spend winters together in these mixed family mid-in groups underground. So they're spending the falls collecting food to store. And then they, they spend the winter together, kind of huddled up to keep each other warm. Other voles tend to be wilder, I guess, in a way, in that they're just really flighty and they bite and run away. <laughs> But yellow cheek voles, because they're so they're social, and I think they interact a lot by touch. I'm using my hands here a lot because I have to, because there's so much tactile. Um, just the whole experience, I guess, with yellow, working with these voles was very tactile. Um, they respond a lot to touch, and they were very friendly in ways that you wouldn't, wouldn't expect. I don't know if it's because they're social. They communicate verbally, like vocally. They vocalize in their communications, and they, they whistle. So as we were spending a lot of time out there working with them, we kind of got to crack the code a little bit of their language and hear certain song sounds that they would make when they were alerted. Like we, because we were walking through, they'd give these alarm signals and things. But also when it was raining, when it would stop raining, you would hear them whistle to each other like to say, hey, the rain stopped, you can come out now or something. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty neat. We had these little cotton, um, they would call them nestlets. They're little pressed cotton pads that were inside of the live trap to give them some place to stay warm. You know, they'd, they'd kind of tear it up and create a nest of it so that they could stay warm when it was colder out or, or damp. And they would steal them out of the traps and sometimes put them in the front of their little burrow entrance and eat. Like they'd bring fireweed or like equisetum horsetails or berries. And they would sit at the entrance of their little burrow and sit on their little cotton nestlet and eat berries. <laughs> they were just so cute. <laughs> coming to rural Alaska was like coming home because culturally, my worldview, my identity, my spirituality, all these things that I had grown up with meshed very well with the culture that I found here, especially the native culture. Uh, my family comes from the upper Midwest, from Minnesota and Wisconsin. My mom's family is in rural Wisconsin, and 
part of our family is indigenous to that area of northern Wisconsin, uh, Potawatomi Ojibwe, that, that cultural group. And so often when you grow up away, you don't think about your life being any different than anybody else's life. Then you go away to college and you meet all these people and you find out that, wow, life's really bigger and more complex than you ever thought. Being out in the environment for months and months at a time, like three or four months at a time each summer, interacting with the wildlife, with the, the plants, with the elements. There were mental aspects and spiritual aspects to that experience. All the, all the players that I interacted with during the day became the characters in my dreams and the storylines that started to like filter through my mind. And I found when I, after or during that experience, when I was talking with elders, when I was reading the stories, um, things made sense. Um, I understood why these creatures were the characters in these traditional stories. So I feel like I kind of came in through a, a, a back door. Like it didn't come into completely through human interaction, but through a, a shared interaction with the environment that then gave us common ground to build relationships and to have conversations. This isn't something that I learned when I came to Alaska. This is something that I grew up with, with this sort of dual way of thinking. And you learn to compartmentalize how you think about things. So you become very skilled at doing your science thing and everything falls into the science bin because it's the scientific method and it follows these rules. And yet within that, all those experiences enrich my personal life, my spiritual experience. But that doesn't always feed back into my scientific work. It's there, it's driving me, it's supporting me in what I do in, in science, but it may not be mentioned in a field report, <laughs> but at the same time, it may affect what I say and do and how I prioritize things. It may give me the drive to write comments and a proposed land use plan that um, I wouldn't be quite so passionate about if I didn't feel that land connection. I think society is opening the door for that in so many ways, so many levels, you know, different types of people who have, we all do this, right? We all have this inner self and then we have this self that we present to the world and creating a society that's more willing to accept presenting all of yourself to the world without judgment is a beautiful vision that I hope, I hope that we're working toward. You know, I'm also a professional communicator, and I think it's really important when we do science to make sure that other people are aware of what we've learned. I love having the opportunity to take pretty fascinating science and then translate that into something that conveys how awesome it is to, uh, to the folks out, out there, you know, and vice versa. It's important to hear the perspective of those living around us because they see and observe and know things in many fascinating ways. Not always ways that mesh well with what we're seeing scientifically. I mean, we're seeing that a lot in 
in our society right now. Sometimes I think the conversation about indigenous knowledge and science can swing too far the direction of like all indigenous knowledge is right and true and good. Sometimes our myths are not true. Sometimes our myths are harmful. So I don't think we can throw science out in our in our passion for accepting other ways of knowing. But I've had some really neat opportunities to work with the Native community. One example was we worked with a student who was, I think she was working on her PhD. We, we also worked with a climatologist and we were talking to elders about, kind of about changes that they'd seen in weather patterns and just basically in their surroundings over their lifetimes. A lot of times we hear about how cold the winters were. Stories about like moose didn't used to be here. We weren't able to rely on moose meat. Now that's like our main staple now. Permafrost changes, people talking about traveling between lakes. And when I used to go from this lake to the next lake, you'd go way over this hill. Well, now that hill isn't there anymore. You can see from one lake to the other because there's just this little bump. Well, that definitely indicates that, man, there was a lot more permafrost underneath this landscape between the lakes. The, the portages were higher. That permafrost has melted. That land has settled. And then we took those pieces and looked at weather records and see, you know, when were there these extremely cold winters? And how does that shake out with what people are remembering? So that was one, one project that I worked on. Another was uh, documenting place names on the Kayakuk River. And we worked with elders and youth. And we just took like a boatload of folks and we drove up the river and we stopped at all these places where things had happened. People had had winter camps, um, old cabin sites, old homesteads, you know, on, and letting the, um, the students were interviewing the elders and recording their stories and it's just phenomenal. Really, really cool and really fun too. Just as we traveled, you know, hearing the elders say, oh, this lake used to go this way and there used to be these cabins at the base of the hill and this cut through is washed out and things. So those kinds of projects are really, really fun and, and um, really valuable. What has Alaska taught me about itself? Patience. There, uh, there's a place on the Kayakuk Refuge. It's the Nogobara Sand Dunes. I've done a lot of work out there. It's a, an area of active sand dunes about six miles across. It was created by sand that blew in after, at the end of the last ice age. This area was unglaciated, but there were glaciers nearby. And uh, it's this ancient, ancient landscape. And when I'm out there, it's one of the quietest places I've ever been. And I sit and listen to the silence. And I, I hang out with the trees. And I think about how those trees are there all the time, all year long, through the dark winters, through the wind and cold and snow, through the long, full-on daylight summers, with the rain dripping off of their needles. Like, they just sit and endure. And these trees, I've cored some of them, they're like 350, 400 years old. They've sat there with that same view 
nurtured by the rotting soil created by their grandparents that lived for hundreds of years and died and rotted and are nurturing them and they endure and they endure all the storms and all the uh, all of it and they just thrive right so what can we take away from that is patience just wait just stay it's gonna change the seasons change you know now we're in the middle of this kind of thing right with this pandemic it feels like it's never gonna change but these trees have been out there for 350 years and they're still doing it right <laughs> we we can do it hang in there you know be resilient and uh do what you can to thrive in in the place where you're planted This has been My Life Wildlife, a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. Producers Lisa Hupp and Chris Pacheco. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert. Audio editing, sound design, and original music by Garrett Tiedemann. Production manager, Gabriella Montequin. Artwork by Michelle Lawson. In Alaska, the employees of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service are shared stewards of world-renowned natural resources and our nation's last true wild places. The lands and waters of this place we call home nourish a vast and unique array of fish, wildlife, and people. Our hope is that each generation has the opportunity to live with, live from, discover, and enjoy the wildness of this awe-inspiring land and the people who love and depend on it.